Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, Bob Schieffer returns to the Shorenstein Center to give an update on the 2016 presidential campaign. Over the next hour, you'll hear Bob talk about his experiences moderating presidential debates, the current field of candidates, and the role the media is playing in the health of American democracy. So welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the acting director of the Shorenstein Center. and this is the second in our series on the presidential campaign with, uh, with Bob Schieffer. Uh, so we're delighted uh, to have Bob Schieffer here. I'm getting quite good at introducing Bob. Uh, and uh, he's the Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow at the Shorenstein Center. will be with us uh, the next two semesters as well, uh, coming twice uh, each semester to the campus. So this is Bob's last kind of go around for the fall term. but. Uh, We'll have him back in the spring uh, twice and then also in the fall. Uh, And each time that he's here, uh, we'll have a conversation about the presidential campaign as well as the many other things that that Bob is doing for the community. Most of you know Bob, but let me just say a few things about him. He's one of the few reporters that uh, covered the four main beats in Washington, Uh, the White House, Congress, State Department, and Defense, uh, and of course anchored uh, CBS Evening, Evening News uh, for a period, uh, longtime moderator and host of, uh, of Face the Nation, uh, book author, I could go on and on, but uh, uh, we're just delighted that Bob is here and, uh, and is coming back. So, so Bob, uh, we have another cam- uh, campaign debate tonight, Republican debate, uh, CNBC is doing it. Um, you know, often we get news reports about the candidates' preparation for the debates, whether they take two days off or some of them kind of go in and wing it. Um, and uh, But you've moderated presidential debates. And uh, could you talk a little bit about the preparation uh, of a moderator for one of these debates? Well, I always tried to, uh, number one, uh, come prepared. Uh, <laughs> I didn't trust myself to wing it, as some of the the candidates might do. Uh, I moderated uh, three of the uh, debates, uh, George Bush and uh, John Kerry, and then Barack Obama and John McCain, and then the uh, last one, of course, uh, with Mitt Romney uh, and and Barack Obama. And the general election debates are, are much different uh, obviously, than than the primary debates, and if I were preparing for one of these debates now, I'm not quite sure how I would go about it. I, I, the ones I had were, were were fairly simple assignments. You had a Democrat and you had a Republican, and uh, uh, that was much easier. I think number one to control. Uh, I think is much easier uh, to promote a discussion, a serious discussion. I think the uh, the problem uh, with these debates where, you know, you have 11 people on stage, uh, it's not conducive to having a, uh, in any way, shape, or form, serious uh, discussion of uh, issues that are going to uh, matter uh, uh, during uh, the presidency, whoever is elected. I mean, it's, it's more like, I think, uh, like when you're in school and everybody's trying to hold up their hands when the teacher asks the question, me, 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 call on me, call on me. And I think it's more of a contest uh, to get attention uh, than it is to, uh, to really uh, say something of substance. Everybody obviously comes prepared with their little one-liners and their zingers. And uh, in the long run, uh, most of those uh, things don't matter, but still, People, I think the debates are very valuable. I mean, people do come away uh, with an impression of, of these people. Sometimes it's uh, right, it proves to be right, sometimes not. But uh, I think it's much better to have these debates uh, than to not have them. And I don't know what I would suggest that they do uh, right now. You've, you've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, now Trump and uh, Ben Carson. Ben Carson is now pulled into the lead in the latest uh, national poll. I, I don't put as much weight into these national polls, uh, and, and this is a CBS poll, but it's as good as they get. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think that the polls conducted at the state level are probably more reflective of the mood 
uh, right now than than an overall national poll. But we we can talk about that later and and what some of these polls mean. I think this has been a very important ten days in this campaign. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton has pretty much righted her ship. And it seemed to be kind of a drift, but she had a great week. Joe Biden decided not to want, uh, run uh, in the last debate. Uh, she she clearly was the dominant uh, person uh, on the stage. Uh, just uh, all of these things, I think, uh, uh, for a campaign that hadn't had uh, very much good news. But to get back, let me just talk about how I prepared for the uh, for the uh, presidential uh, debates that uh, that I. I moderated, and the first one is I was getting ready to do it, and, and this is absolutely true. I, I awoke one night in a cold sweat. I had had this dream, and I was doing this debate, and I looked down at my piece of paper, and I had no more questions to ask, and then I looked up at the clock, and I noticed we still had 20 minutes to go, <laughs> and it really frightened me in the middle of the night, and so I always made sure that when I went into these debates that I had more questions than I could possibly ever ask, and then, you know, assembling them in an order of what you think is important, that, that is step two. But in, in the last one that I did uh, uh, with uh, President Obama uh, and, and Mitt Romney, uh, about six weeks uh, before the, uh, before the uh, uh, debate, uh, I just called around Washington to the various think tanks there. And uh, I would say, for example, who, who's your expert on cyber? at CSIS, and it turns out it's, it's, uh, it's a guy named Lewis, Jim Lewis, and they said, Jim Lewis, and I said, I would just like to talk to him and get his thoughts on what he thinks uh, cyber is, what it's about, and will it play a role in this debate? And so I called him, he said, sure, and I said, could I come over and see you? He said, I'll come over and see you. And he did, and he came over and we spent two hours. And one of the things I've learned, Tom, is Experts love to talk about their expertise. <laughs> they love it. And too many times, nobody ever calls them. And I interviewed 26 people from the various think tanks around Washington. All of these people, experts in their field, only two of them did I have to go to their office to talk to them. The other said, oh, I'll be glad to come by and talk to you. Everybody uh, wants to be a part of something like this. And for me, it was like going back to graduate school uh, to get to talk to these people. Now, in addition to these people, and, and when I say they came to the office, I spent at least two hours with them talking about their, uh, their fields of expertise. Uh, then I talked to other reporters, uh, friends of mine. I talked to my colleagues at CBS News and basically just asked them the simple question, what do you think I ought to ask these guys? I, I'm, kind of a, uh, I'm kind of an advocate of the obvious. I mean, ask the obvious questions. And, and the obvious question uh, to me was, what are the questions I should be asking these people? As a result, uh, after, as we, by the time we got to the bait, I actually had, and I counted them to make sure I was right, I had 300 questions uh, to go into that debate, and I guess we asked probably on that list 12 of them, 12 to 14 of them. And uh, I, I'm just a great believer in being prepared uh, when you show up for something like that. And uh, I always, I didn't do that much work when I interviewed people every Sunday on Face the Nation, but I always tried to make sure I knew what I thought were both sides of an issue before I asked somebody about it. And uh, I think uh, to be uh, successful at that, I think that's what you have to do. So uh, be prepared. I mean, it's the Boy Scouts, that's their motto, but I think it's also a good motto for uh, debate moderators. So you're on the board of the uh, Presidential Debate Commission. Mm -hmm. um, Charlie Gibson, a former fellow of the Shorenstein mm -hmm. Center, is also on that board. Uh, so they were, and they have announced the places and the mm -hmm. and the dates for the fall debates, and um, and yet to be negotiated, I assume, and that'll take place between the debate commission and the candidates, mm -hmm. kind of what the rules are going to be mm -hmm. and, and and the like. So, but as moderator, you kind of end up in the position of being the rule enforcer, whether you like it or not, right? So, um, how hard was that to keep 
these people working within the kind of the rules of the debate, the length of time, and, and well, you know, I uh, the last two debates that I moderated, uh, it was the two candidates and myself sitting at a table, and we were as close as you are. I mean, President Obama was here, and uh, Mitt Romney was here. The one before that, President Obama and uh, and John McCain. I think uh, putting them at the table like that. Uh, where you can make eye contact with them, where you can watch their body language, watch them talking uh, to each other. I think that is the best way uh, to have a, a, a serious discussion. And the way, the way we did the last two, instead of saying, you know, we're going to ask this guy a question and he has one minute to answer and then you have 30 seconds to respond and then you have 15 seconds to respond to the respond, uh, when I did the first debate, when those were sort of the rules with, uh, with, with, uh, when John Kerry uh, was, uh, was there with George W. Bush, I found myself concentrating more on the time and all of that than on the questions and trying to listen to the response. What we've done for the last uh, two debates that I have moderated is uh, we would, uh, and, and the last time around, we actually told them what the gen in general what the subjects were, were going to be. We didn't, we were pretty vague about it, like, you know, the war in the Middle East, uh, you know, that because you don't want to give away too much in that, but just so they'll be prepared. And we'd set aside, uh, I can't remember what it was, 15 minutes, I think. I. We flipped a coin to see who would go first, and then the next question, the other guy would go first. And uh, uh, that worked very well, I thought. And I, I, I uh, the debate commission will, will come up with the rules and uh, on how they'll be conducted. I think that is the most, uh, most effective in the best format. The format, and I've said this publicly, that I do not think works is uh, where we had what they called a town hall. Uh, meeting and uh, this would be where you bring in citizens as it were and and you have to go out and get your pollsters to make sure you have people across a broad spectrum and then and then the moderator calls on the various uh, people to, to uh, answer the questions uh, the ones that I have seen I think have been the least successful of the debates uh, in recent years in that it just it, it, it becomes a free-for-all and the people, there's no, you know, it's very difficult to do follow-up questions. Everybody comes prepared with their, with their questions and it just doesn't work. It sounds good on paper and it sounds like, you know, this is really democracy at work, but, but frankly, it doesn't work uh, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so uh, one of the things that I will recommend, and I've said this publicly to, to the debate commission, I'm just a rookie, I'm just, uh, just have just come on the commission, the first time I've had anything to do with it, is that we don't do uh, those, uh, those uh, town hall kind of uh, meetings again. And I would like for each one of the debates to be uh, the candidates sitting at the table with me. And it, it, it's really, uh, I'll, I'll just tell you one little thing, uh, how much fun it is to be up close the first one I did, the, the two candidates were behind podiums, and it just adds kind of a stiffness uh, to the occasion. But during, during the debate with uh, President Obama and, and John McCain, John McCain is just Mr. Energy. He's Mr. Over-caffeinated. I mean, that's, that's just his personality. It's just the way he is. He's always, you know, moving around and so forth. And what I found so interesting in that debate, uh, when, when Obama would speak, McCain would be over there, he'd be writing notes and doing this and that and the other. And then, and then when McCain would speak, uh, Barack Obama just sat there and looked at him. And it was like two prize fighters before a fight when they're trying to stare one another down. I don't think Obama ever blinked. He just, <laughs> he just kept looking at him. And he didn't take any notes, but I realized at one point he had his pen out and he was going like this, and what he was doing, he was drawing a straight line across. It was almost like some sort of Zen exercise. I, I don't know what it was about. I don't know how much pressure he was putting on that pen. I, I don't know what it was about, but he would just, 
do like that and he'd be looking at McCain. And I don't know what the impact on McCain was, but and I don't even know what all this means, but I, I was just struck by it. It was one of the most uh, interesting things and it was obviously something that wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't see as a television viewer out there, but, but I thought it was very interesting. And one of these days, uh, I'm going to ask President Obama, what what was that all about? I mean, it's one of the things I'd, I'd really like to know the answer to, and I've just never had the opportunity to ask him. Thank you. So let's open it up. And again, uh, students first, and uh, please identify yourself when you ask a question. Yes, sir. In the, the back. Um, Could you wait for the mic? Thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, my name is Joseph Atterman. I'm a British journalist and a master's student at the Middle Eastern Centre here at Harvard. Um, you've talked a lot about how the debates uh, uh, take place. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about the content of them. Now there's a whole industry around picking apart what the candidates have said and what they've lied about, um, and especially kind of that, those untruths that come out in what is effectively a journalistic outlet. Um, what, what do you think about that? Uh in other words, the content, uh, whether it's, uh, I think the presidential debates, uh, I think they are serious discussions, and I think they do have tremendous impact. They probably have more impact than any other single thing uh, during the debate season, including the campaign commercials, which, sad to say, uh, probably the most influential thing that happens in our political campaigns now are, uh, are or the campaign commercials, but the debates in uh, public opinion clearly can shift uh, after uh, after a presidential debate. Uh, I think the role of the moderator is not to be the corrector. You'd be the kind of the corrector of last resort is the way I would put it. Uh, my My philosophy on campaign coverage in general is uh, it's not up to the press to make the campaign. The candidates make the campaign. The candidates bring out what they consider important, and that's what they run on. And so if one candidate stumbles or, or makes an error in fact, I think it is the role of the other guy, the other, the other candidate, to correct that, to find that, and say you're dead wrong about that. And uh, I, think, I think the moderator can come back and if there's a glaring uh, error of fact and, and then correct it. But again, I just go back to my philosophy of, 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 of campaign reporting and it reminds me very much, there used to be a golf analyst on uh, CBS named Ken Venturi and he'd, he'd been, you know, he was a, very, uh, a, a professional champion, he'd won the, the Open and all of that. And I remember some years ago when Tiger Woods was really, really good and his swing, something had gone wrong with his swing. And on television, somebody asked Venturi, said, what would you advise Tiger to do to fix his swing? And he said, I didn't come here uh, to be a golf instructor. I came here to watch. I came here to report on what's happening out there. And that's kind of my, my philosophy of campaign coverage. Uh, we're there to moderate. Uh, nobody's uh, going to choose the national moderator after these debates. It's our role to put the spotlight on the candidates and let them bring out uh, the best and, and the worst uh, that they have to offer. I'll tell you one little interesting uh, sidelight of the last debate. Um, of course, Benghazi, which is still in the news, was big news at that time. And, and as I was going through deciding what question I should ask first, uh, I, I decided what I needed to do was uh, was ask about Benghazi because I sure I was sure that no matter what either one of them uh, said, it, it was going to be news, and we, we would get some feeling about what they what they thought about it. Well, the coin was flipped, and the first question went to Romney, and I thought, boy, I'm just going to serve up a big old fastball right down the middle of the plate here, and and you know he'll have an opportunity to do what he can with it. So I asked him about Benghazi. And he deflected the question and, and, and really just almost didn't answer it at all. Well, then it came uh, Obama's turn to uh, rebut that, and he just ripped into him uh, like 
you might have expected to do and, and gave the best defense that uh, the administration had given up until that point about Benghazi and, and, and what was going on there. I was stunned when, when uh, Romney deflected that question. I later found out that the Romney people thought they were winning at that point and they had polls showing uh, that they were winning at that point and their, their strategy was to not really make any news but just try to hold things together. They were in kind of a prevent defense as it were. Just our purpose in going out in this debate is just simply not to make a mistake. And so it was by design that he deflected this question. I think it was a mistake and I think uh, the Romney campaign team would tell you today uh, it was a mistake, but they based their strategy on what proved to be false information. The polls, he was not leading at that point. Uh, he had come close to leading uh, after the first debate, which was kind of the high point of the Romney campaign, but uh, that was why he didn't answer the question he did. But again, uh, I did not see it as the role of the moderator to say, wait a minute, why, you know, why aren't you answering this question? You know, I thought it was up to President Obama uh, to raise that question and, and to give the response, and he did. Uh, the role of the moderator is to let people, give people a better understanding of who these people are, because one of them is going to be president. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Alex Gold. This thing? Okay, cool. Um, so you mentioned town hall debates and kind of how they're a little inadequate, and I agree. I think that they're not necessarily the most conducive style to making for an interesting uh, debate at all. That being said, um, there seems like there's a real effort to get a kind of popular voice in the debate format in some way. See, like at the last Democrat debate, for example, you see guys like Don Lemon calling people on Twitter to ask questions, and it's not particularly graceful. It seems like it never really works out all that well. Um, but as a young person who's interested in politics and who's interested in having my voice and my friends' voices heard, um, things like that, I guess I was wondering if you had any suggestions for ways that you could include the popular voice in these debates and get the candidates to kind of address their concerns in a better fashion than has been done so far. Uh, I understand exactly what you're saying, and and, and the uh, people who like these town hall kind of things, that's that's the argument they make. You need to get the voice of the people in there and all that. But you know, generally speaking, the reporters who are asking the questions are, are professionals. I mean, if you break your arm, you want to go to a doctor to get it fixed. You don't want to just bring in members of the community who, you know, are trying to, you know, do something helpful. And and in in that way, and I don't mean to to downplay or or, or denigrate in any way uh, people who want their, their voices to be heard. I think it's perfectly, uh, perfectly fine to have people send in questions on Twitter and uh, have someone filter those out and uh, make sure that maybe the moderator gets to them because they're generally uh, good questions. But the idea in, the, uh, in these debates where the town hall thing, I mean, you, you have these people come in, it's the first time they've ever been on television, and, and they're obviously nervous and, uh, many times, and uh, it's, it's a whole different deal for them. It's, it's like in the White House. I mean, I, and I can't tell you how many people I've, I've talked to, both parties over the years, of people who come to the White House to really tell the president, they have an appointment to tell the president how how things ought to be done. And they come in with all this advice and, you know, they, they have it all mapped out and then they walk into the Oval Office and they say, oh my God, this is the Oval Office. And they just, they're gaga, you know? And, and I mean, it's it, they've never been there before. And I'm not saying they're not smart people and all of that, but. Uh, it is such an overwhelming experience to go in that uh, I, I just think there there are better ways to do it than, and you know I might be wrong. This is just my opinion than than the town hall format. But I, I don't see anything wrong with uh, with the people sending in questions and and 
you know, and having someone, obviously the moderator can't be sitting there watching his, you know, his phone. He's got to be concentrating on what's going on. But um, there are ways to get questions to people. And, you know, you could say something. At this point, we've been hearing from our viewers out there, and here are some of the questions that they have sent in to ask. And then, but I think it's better to do it through the moderator. Please. Mike Naylor, I'm studying public policy here. I'm interested in all the time you've been covering uh, campaigns. Would you say that the candidates in the aggregate are more, less, or the same amount of qualification as they have always been? You mean the quality of the candidates right now? Yes. Well, well and, and how has it changed over time? Well, uh, I think it's changed a lot. Uh, and, you know, let's look at where we are today. You know, I mean, I, I've made this speech till I'm blue in the face here, so I'm not going to make it again today. I think the, the whole system has so been so overwhelmed by money and, and the fact that you have to spend most of your time raising the money that uh, we're seeing an entirely different group of people seeking office now because, quite frankly, uh, quite frankly, uh, a lot of serious people just no longer want to fool with it. They don't want to do what you have to do to run for office anymore and go through the scrutiny you have to go through, but mainly just to go through this fundraising and, and going around and begging people for money. So I don't think the quality of the candidates, quite frankly, I'm not saying they're bad people, I'm just saying it's a different group of people uh, that present themselves for public office now, and not, not just at the presidential level, but at every level. Of, of, of campaigning and I mean after after the last Democratic debate I mean we're all familiar with the Republican field where you have a reality TV star and, and a, a doctor uh, who I would just say one thing I'm never going to ask him for is is infantry tactics advice I mean anybody that's going to tell people I want you to rush headlong into that machine gun uh, I think we probably found out during World War One that was not not a very good tactic. The generals found out then. Uh, but a reality TV star, uh, a neurosurgeon that has had no experience in politics, now leading the field on the Republican side, and then you turn to the Democratic side, and what do we have there? You have in my view, basically one legitimate Democratic candidate. You may love Hillary, you may hate her, but she's a legitimate candidate. She has a national following. She was a senator. She was the Secretary of State. Uh, she, she has a resume. Uh, but then what comes next? Bernie Sanders, one of the nicest guys in the world who has never run for anything as a Democrat. And he stood on that stage and said, oh, by the way, I'm not a capitalist. You know, uh, he might get some votes around here, but <laughs> I'm not sure he's going to get any votes down around Fort Worth, where I grew up. <laughs> and I'm saying he has every right to run, but here he's running second. And, and then after that, you have a small state governor, Martin O'Malley, a very nice person, good, good governor, but really someone who's established no national following. And then a couple of people who just showed up because they had the evening free, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, what, what does that say for our political system? And I mean, when you go to, from the far left to the far right and you say to yourself, one of these people is going to be elected president. Uh, it kind of scares me in some ways, and uh, I, uh, I just think we could probably do better than that. But there's such an aversion now. People are so disgusted with politics. They're so fed up with it, with the, with the gridlock and all that kind of thing, that they just don't want to fool with it anymore. And that's why you see a reality TV star and a neurosurgeon leading on the Democratic uh, side. I mean, to me, when I was a little boy, my grandmother thought I was going to be president of the United States. You know why? Because that's what every grandmother thought about their grandson. They weren't quite ready to say their granddaughter at that point. Now they do. They, they would today. They'd, that's not totally not beyond the realm, as this current campaign is showing. But every grandmother thought her, her child was going to grow up to be president of the United States. And I would just ask you this question. 
How many of you have heard anybody say lately, I hope my child goes into politics? I haven't heard that. I mean, you'll hear more people ask for the recipe of airline food than you will, <laughs> than you will hear uh, ask that question. And I think that's the greatest indictment of all. So the floor is open to questions from anybody. Yes, sir. <laughs> I've been waiting to use that line, and it worked. <laughs> Can you demystify for us the figure of Ben Carson? He's handsome, he's black, but the blackness doesn't seem to be an issue in this case. How did he become president? What's his background? Where did he come from? What's his family like? He, uh, he says, what I think there's a certain segment of the white population finds music to their ears. He says that black people need to get off welfare and get a job, and if they do, everything will be all right. I think it's a little more complicated than that, uh, but that's, that's, what he, that's what he says. Uh, but you know, this is someone uh, who doesn't believe in evolution, and beyond that says it's the work of the devil. Uh, I think his success thus far uh, has been because he is, he again is a product of, a, of an electorate that is disgusted and frustrated and upset about the current uh, uh, state of affairs. And I think in a funny kind of way, because he has this calm, soothing voice, he's become the kind of the quiet, polite Donald Trump. Uh, expressing some of the same things that Trump says, but in kind of polite language. And so I think that's the, uh, that's the uh, key to his success. But again, I think he's just a product of the times, of uh, people that are frustrated and upset and want something different than what they've got now. I think many people uh, who follow him are not quite sure what they want, but they do know they don't want what they've got. And uh, I, I think it's that. I think, I said in the beginning uh, that I thought that we had to take Trump seriously. Uh, and I think he made a very accurate list of all the things people are upset about. He's yet to offer anything that I would call a, a realistic solution. But, but he did make an accurate list of what people are upset about. A lot of what he's upset about, uh, uh, I, I'm upset about. So. I still think, see him as a factor. I think as people begin to see and examine some of the things that Trump, I mean, that uh, Carson has said in the past, I think, uh, I'm not sure that's going to stand up to scrutiny. So while he is leading in the polls now, uh, I would still, I still think that Trump uh, at this point has a better chance to get the nomination uh, than he does. I. Uh, I'm not sure Trump is going to get the nomination, but then you look at the list and say, well, if he doesn't, who is? Because uh, now you have Marco Rubio is running third in that national poll, and uh, you see him, you know, usually running third or fourth in most of these state polls. He's at eight percent. Jeb Bush, who's raised a hundred million dollars, uh, is getting seven percent, and then you know it's it gets lower and lower as you go on down the pack. So I think right now. Uh, Trump and Carson are still the leaders on that side. Okay. Yes, sir. Hi, Mark Slomiani. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, uh, how has uh, YouTube basically changed debate preparation? Because we've seen a movement from you know radio to TV to soundbite TV. But the way that you see YouTube clips about the debate is very different, and you're seeing an increased amount of viewership of the debate by YouTube or even clipped YouTube. Yeah. Uh, well, we are basically in the midst of a communications revolution, and uh, nobody knows it better than those of us in journalism, especially those of us in mainstream journalism, because it's just not the way it used to be. Uh, you know, when I... When I became a reporter, I was a newspaper reporter before I was a, a television reporter, and uh, most people in those days got their news from print. They got it from newspapers. The week that President Kennedy was assassinated, from that week on, uh, the majority of the American people got their news from television. 
Now we don't know where people get their news. We don't know. We just know that they're overwhelmed by information. YouTube is one of them. And, and, and what is different is that because we're so overwhelmed with inter, uh, information and you know you can now get it from any point of view that you want to but what we're finding over and over again that we're no longer basing our opinions on the same set of facts the people that watch watch fox get one set of facts the people that watch the things that veer more to the left the msnbc for example they they get another set of facts we're no longer basing our opinions on the same data as we once did and and that's what's changed everything and youtube is just one just one part of that as as we've continued to kind of fractionalize uh the the people who who get their news from all these different sources unless you're watching or, or reading and 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 really go to some trouble to get a full picture by checking with various sources you're going to get a different a different set of facts than maybe the person sitting over here on the front row and uh, that's the that's a tough thing for those of us in mainstream journalism and, and what we're dealing with how do we how do we cut through this great maw of information much of which is wrong some of it wrong on purpose and, and tell people what we think it is that they need to know uh, relevant uh, information but uh, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we're all dealing with it. We're all struggling with it. Uh, you have local newspapers uh, literally trying to find some sort of a business model to stay to stay afloat. I, I talked to a guy that worked for uh, just got laid off the other day from a uh, from a uh, fairly good sized newspaper in the South. It once been a pretty good newspaper, and I, he said, uh, you know, the latest round of layoffs. You know what they're doing? They laid off all the editors. They laid off all the editors, and and what he says the way way it operates now, uh, uh, there's kind of a city editor. He sends a reporter out to do a story. He goes out, but before he comes back to the office, he sits down at his computer and he files the story, and, and puts it on the on on the newspaper's website. And uh, uh, not one person other than the reporter reads that story before it goes out on on the web. And, and those are the kinds of problems that local newspapers are dealing with now as they're finding you know, harder and harder to find the revenue to support uh, a newspaper as we know it today. I think, frankly, that is the biggest crisis that we face in journalism. I, I, I don't know why I think this, but I kind of feel like uh, national news will sort of take care of itself in some way, but it's this local news. And if, if somehow or another, uh, this is a long way from the question you just asked me, but I think it's all part of the same thing. If if we don't find some entity, and I don't know what that is, uh, that will do what we expect of local newspapers today, I mean, we'll have, for example, more corruption in this country than we've ever seen. It will be at a level that we've never seen before. But uh, you're you're absolutely right to ask, uh, you know, about about the impact, and it's 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 part of a much bigger thing, but it's it's very, very serious. In the back. Uh, Justin Harley from the Shopkin Center, visiting scholar. Um, one question I had about the Republican debate. I've noticed uh, Jeb Bush seems to be, from an international perspective, underperforming greatly in the polls of 7%, mm -hmm. and being quite lackluster in debates, and now with Trump being overtaken by Carson. What are some of the successful strategies you've seen over the years in debates and what do you expect from tonight's debate in relation to that? Well, I think we might get, uh, since it is uh, CNBC, the business channel, I, I, I would expect we might hear more economic questions, which there hadn't been very much information about that. In fact, I noticed in the New York Times today uh, that uh, uh, the person at uh, CNBC uh, went through all the transcript and discovered that in all the previous debates, nobody had asked a question about the debt limit and what, what we ought to do about the debt limit. So my guess is you're going to hear that uh, early on uh, as, as one of the questions. As for Bush, uh, whatever else you want to say about him, I think Jeb Bush is a serious person. And uh, I think uh, by today's standards on the Republican side, he's, he's moderate uh, and, uh, and thoughtful. But you know, in this 
current atmosphere and the way with with all those people up on the stage all vying for attention, I just think it's all but impossible to be serious and, and, and to come off well. I, I think in the end that none of them come off well, in, in, including the moderators sometime, and my heart goes out to them. And I, th I mean, I think they've all done a good job, uh, starting with Megan Kelly. I didn't see that she asked anything that was uh, inappropriate, quite, quite frankly. Uh, but in this, you know, kind of reality TV show setting that these, seem, these uh, things seem to have become, I think it's very difficult for anyone uh, to come off well, and I think uh, Bush is one of those who has suffered the most, quite frankly. Right here. Uh, thank you. I'm Greg Pichotta. I'm a human fellow and a journalist from Eastern Europe, from Poland. I have a question about this rise of populism that you observe somewhat here, and we observe in Eastern Europe very much. Uh, do you think that media has a special role to play to respond to this rise of populism and degradation of the uh, conversation about public issues? Should we just document and give her time to populists, or we should rather do something else about it? Well, I think we have to report it. I mean, that's what uh, that's what our great weapon is is is, is to lay it out there and, and try to help people understand uh, uh, what's going on and. Uh, uh, but I'm not sure that we we can correct it. I mean, it's it's when people get fed up with it. That's that's when things change. And uh, uh, what people are upset about right now uh, in this country is the government has ceased to function. Uh, it can't do anything. I mean, even when they try, uh, when they're both on the same side, sometimes uh, the process has become so uh, so uh, just gridlock that that nothing gets done and uh, again I go back to my thing I think it's because of the way the system has been overwhelmed by money and and how they have to spend so much time looking for more money that they don't have time to work on these problems but the fact is uh, we've got a Congress now where <clears throat> the expertise level I think is lower than it's ever been I mean, we've elected people that are not very good at what they do. They're not good politicians. They're not good businessmen. <clears throat> they know how to go out and beg people for money. Uh, but beyond that, they don't know how to compromise. And, and compromise has, has become a dirty word. You know, it used to be what made the government work. And, and any legislative body uh, that is unable to compromise uh, is not going to be able to do very much. And what, what happens now, it costs so much money to run for office that you have to sign off with so many interest groups before you get to Washington that once you get there, your, your positions are simply set in stone. And so there, you can't do anything. And, and so you, you have to concentrate on raising more money so you don't get a primary opponent the next time around. And, and the result is just what we've got what we've got right now. I mean, you know, uh, look at what's just happened in Washington. Boehner announces he's <clears throat> he's not going to run the next time. I mean, he was he was basically dethroned. Uh, he they were going to dump him if he didn't resign. And lo and behold, while we've been going through all these campaign debates and all that, uh, leaders from both sides, from the White House, from the Senate, and from the House, have worked out a budget agreement. Now. Is that going to pass? I think probably it is going to pass. But I mean, when they have to, they can do things. And and but already, uh, you're seeing people on the right say, well, well, they shouldn't have done it in secret. They shouldn't. Uh, you know, this is an example of what's wrong. But but they can do things when they have to do it, and 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 when there there is leadership. But most of the time is spent on uh, laying out positions and taking positions uh, that will help them politically and not looking for, for solutions. And, uh, and that's the part that, that simply has to change. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for being here. My name is Cara Matthews and I work here in the Women in Public Policy program. Something that you said, keep on saying, is that the leaders we have are just not up to par. 
So my question really is, what do we have to do to get more people on the ballot? I think about this from the perspective of women and from people of color. We talk about just lack of representation um, or adequate representation, proportional representation um, overall, and just quality. There's a problem with quality. So I'm thinking about the role of journalism and the power and the opportunities within journalism to be culturally transformative and thinking about some of the challenges with our congressional gridlocks um, and the fact that a lot of them are just based in values um, that are you know, distinct and different, how do we use journalism and the power of journalism to influence our, our cultural dynamics and our expectations and values? And how do we push more people to be on the ballot, people to represent us and actually push our, you know, other systems to um, encourage us to be more civically engaged as a whole? I think we have to keep going back and sometimes <laughs> we just have to keep telling the same story over and over. But the most important point we need to make to people uh, is these things really matter? The person that you elect to the state legislature really matters. The person that you send to Congress really matters. Uh, and, and it really matters and they, they react to public opinion. And you know, you have to let them know when you think they've done something wrong. And another thing is it's good to let them know when they've done something right. Uh, and we have to somehow or another get to young people and to the next generation and say this is honest work, this is important work, this is something that can really make a difference and it could also, as, you know, as I say to kids talking about going into journalism, it's also a great way to spend your life and, it, and it's a lot of fun and, and basically that's the only reason you don't do anything when you come right down to it, do something you really like to do and uh, the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. But if I had some magic solution to all this, I'd be glad to lay it out here today. I don't, but I just know this. Uh, our attitude toward politics, we have let the disgust and the frustration uh, of seeing a government that's, that's basically broken, we've let us, that's led us to think, well, I just don't want anything to do with it. I mean, what we have to convince these young people is this is why you want to have something to do with it. And this, this is important and you really can make a difference. It's not gonna come from the top, it has to come from the bottom. And uh, somehow or another, I mean, in this country, we've always figured that out. Uh, you know, we always, in the end, uh, the American people do what's right. And when we have to come together, we do. Think about 9-11. I always remember the day after 9-11 when the Senate met and they voted unanimously a $40 billion emergency appropriation. And when uh, Trent Lott and uh, Tom Daschle, the two Senate leaders, came out uh, to talk <coughs> about this, Trent Lott put his, put his arm and put his hand on, on Tom Daschle's shoulder. And these were two men who, you know, were bitter political <coughs> enemies, and yet they understood that we had to come together and get this done, and they did. And it was, it, to me, um, maybe only to me, but to me it was one of the most touching scenes that I'd ever seen uh, in all the years I spent in Washington. We have the ability to do this. We, 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 we're a good people. Uh, we come from good ancestors. Uh, but we just have to get it done. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to or not. I, I hope we are. We always have in the past. But uh, that's the only hope that I have. Yes, on the back, please. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Chris Ching. I, I'm dying to know, before we let you go, in your time moderating, who was, or if you can't choose, were the greatest debaters that you've moderated? Uh, I thought uh, President Obama was very good. Uh, I think I thought he was a, a very good uh, moderator. Uh, the uh, John Kerry was fine. George Bush was fine. Uh, uh, John McCain was John McCain, uh, but uh, and, and I thought Mitt Romney uh, was a good spokesman for his side, but I just think uh, in his case, I think they had the wrong strategy, and I think they went about it uh, in the wrong way. I don't know if that would have made any difference in the election. I, I think uh, I think President Obama was going to win, but uh, I think they might have come closer had he had he changed uh, strategy, but. Uh, you know, I gotta say, you know, Hillary Clinton is a pretty good debater, 
And uh, the interesting thing in watching, last week was a very good week for her, as, as I said, and I was just thinking uh, as I was watching all this, there's one thing you have to say for the Clintons. I mean, they just keep hanging in there. <laughs> and, you know, it was whether, and it always, the way it comes out, whether it was uh, Paula Jones, whether it was Whitewater, whether it was Monica Lewinsky, and we got it, the impeachment situation, uh, what the Clintons somehow seem to do is hang around until their opponents overplay their hand. And, and when they do, then, then they wind up uh, winning. And I think that's clearly what happened on this uh, Benghazi committee. There, look, there are really legitimate questions to ask her about Benghazi. I know, as I said, I've started some of this, uh, raised these questions about the White House sending out Susan Rice uh, when what she said was uh, bore no resemblance uh, to the facts uh, of what happened there. Uh, how do we make sure that doesn't happen again? Uh, did, the, did the State Department uh, bureaucracy, was it slow to respond when these people were trying to, to, uh, to answer? But to put on an 11-hour uh, something that was closer to the Spanish Inquisition uh, to, than, to, than to a congressional debate, uh, I think uh, they couldn't have given her $10 million and had it come out better for her. And I think it was part of the, of, of the good uh, the week that she had. So I, I would have to I'd give her credit. Uh, she's a pretty good debater. Here, please. David Matic, I'm a journalist and a visiting student here. Uh, my question is, uh, on a global scale, having experienced uh, many generations of uh, presidential candidates, if you see now on a global scale, comparing the new generation uh, of presidential candidates with the previous ones, um, the ability and um, how will they face the international uh, uh, equals, uh, like Putin, Angela Merkel with decades of experience with uh, very well established political position in the world, are, are they fit for this? And, and, and you're saying, do I see the uh, who on the international front do I see as leaders or? No, no not about the international leaders. Are they, is American president. Is a new generation of uh, presidential candidates, uh, how would they look on the international scale? Facing, for example, Erdogan uh, with very particular issues, yeah. Putin with his uh, issues, and as you like uh, taking into account the decades of their experience on the political uh -huh. scene. Well, I mean, uh, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to pick out uh, favorites and that sort of thing. But I would just, you know, I would just say uh, on the Republican side, clearly uh, Donald Trump has had no. Uh, experience uh, dealing with world leaders. He, he is a deal maker, and I guess he has met with people over the years. I think uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Ben Carson has had no experience of any kind on that front. Uh, uh, on the Democratic side, I guess you'd have to say Hillary Clinton uh, has, has experience. And, uh, but, you know, how they would deal with these people, I mean, I, 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 really, couldn't, I really couldn't say at, at this point. Hi, I'm uh, Mitch McGuffey. Always great to be in the presence of uh, another Texan. So, uh, I where are you from? Uh, from the town of Goliad, Texas. I know exactly, Texas, down so. in South Texas. Um, I recently left the military after 12 years of service, uh, very troubled by the fact that the same democratic institutions that I signed up to protect the rise of cynicism in America. And I, I also recently read uh, Craig Crawford's book, Attack the Messenger. And I think in his book, he talks about how we're all kind of responsible. The public is responsible, the media, the politicians. And he argues that the politicians have won by turning this around on the media and, and making it about them and reducing the faith that Americans have in the media that actually help to protect our democracy and we rely on to deliver our news. Um, so he makes some, some arguments in there, uh, you know, in his book about what he thinks needs to happen to turn this rise of cynicism around in America. And I would ask you if you could comment on the media in particular and how we get away from this idea of opinionated journalism. I find it harder and harder every time I go back to Texas to have a conversation with my family 
uh, who has Fox News burned in the side of their TV for watching it 24 hours a day. And I, I just feel like you know, we're all responsible, the public's responsible, but if you could comment on the media, how do we get back to restoring the public's faith in the media that you're gonna tell us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Yeah, I, I think uh, I have not read uh, Craig Crawford's book. I know him, uh, but I think it's not just uh, a loss of faith in the media. I think it's a loss of faith in all institutions uh, is, is the problem we have now. And again, it goes back to, uh, you know, when something doesn't work, everybody's unhappy. And, and right now, uh, Washington, you know, was once seen as the uh, shining city on a hill has become the town where nothing works. And, and all of these institutions, I mean, starting from the Secret Service and the Internal Revenue Service uh, and these very, the Veterans Administration, all of these things that we once took for granted, they don't work very well anymore. <clears throat> and I think, I think that uh, is, is part of the reason that they're you know, and, and people, they, you're no, there's no question about it. People have lost faith in many cases uh, in the media. And, but I always think about <clears throat> Charles Kuralt, uh, what he, he once said. I was at some kind of a conference with him, and Charles was just overwhelmingly received, and, you know, everybody was coming up to him, and we were all kidding him later. I said, boy, they love you. And he said, listen, guys, he said, never forget this. He said, I don't report the bad news. I only report stories where the good news, when it's good news and stories that come out the way people want them to come out. He said, of course, uh, of course they like me. And uh, I think, I think that's, that's part of uh, with the media. Our job, I mean, we, we, we have to report what we find and hope people will take actions to correct it. But a lot of people are, will always be dissatisfied. Uh, with that, so I think what you're talking about is just uh, is just part of a, a national disillusionment with, with 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 all of our institutions. But again, your point goes back to the one I I tried to make before. If all you do is watch Fox News, you're going to get different information from the people that might watch a different channel, and uh, and they're now. 700 channels out there. I mean, I'm sure there's a vegetarian network out there somewhere <laughs> that you could get it from a vegetarian point of view. But it's a good question. So we have uh, time for one more question. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Schieffer. I'm yeah. actually from Odessa, Texas. Are you really? Texas, yes, I was just wondering, uh, can you talk about anything? Can I tell you one thing about Odessa, Texas? <laughs> <laughs> We played Odessa one time. I went to high school in Fort Worth, and I was on the baseball team, and we, I had the most unusual experience I've ever had in Odessa, Texas. <laughs> we went out there, and the first game, we were going to play a doubleheader and another game. And uh, the first day, uh, the game was called on account of rain. The second day, the, the game was called on, a, on account of a sandstorm that came through. The third day, it snowed. <laughs> and that's a, apropos of nothing, but I just want you to know, <clears throat> Odessa is always in my mind. <laughs> it's a pretty funny place, and good luck to TCU this weekend. Yeah, well, we, we're going to need it. <laughs> I was just wondering if you could talk about a time where you're being in the room with the candidates, if your impression of what was going on on the stage just differed completely from how the, the public ended up seeing it, and how the optics in that room can change based on how the public sees it in the week after a debate? You know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that, uh, I don't know about that, and I'm, I'm not sure I could answer. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, these debates are, they are events. And I'll never forget the first one I did. And, and people ask me, you know, because I've been on TV so long, they say, you know, do you get nervous? Uh, and and the, the true answer is I don't. I mean, I've just done it so long, and, it, and kind of being on TV, that part of being a TV journalist, is kind of like professional sports. I mean, you, you learn to play the game, then you learn to play in front of people, and then you kind of don't know the people are there because you're zoned in and you're so concentrating on what you're doing that you, you don't know there's an audience. So the truth of the matter is it's been many, many years uh, when I was what I would call nervous. You get up for big things. But I'll never forget, I was standing backstage 
uh, before that first debate getting ready to go on. And I looked down and my hands were shaking. I mean, and my script was like this. And I realized for the first time in, you know, 30 years, uh, I was really nervous. I really had butterflies. And because, uh, you know, 60 million people watch. And it's a pretty good-sized crowd out there. And, and uh, But then, you know, the red light went on, and, you know, your training kicks in, and I went out, and I, I didn't think about it anymore. But uh, it really is, it's it's an amazing event, and um, the atmosphere, uh, that's, that's just one part of it. But the other part of it was I thoroughly enjoyed it, you know, and I really was glad I got to do it. And uh, But the... Uh, People ask me about, you know, in my career, the stories I covered. I covered the assassination of President Kennedy, Watergate, and later Vietnam, and all of that. Those were the, in 9-11, those are the stories you don't forget. But just the, from the standpoint of an intellectual exercise, uh, the debates are clearly uh, the part that, uh, that I remember most. And uh, I, I think they're really good things. I, It'll never happen, but I've recommended to the commission, I think there ought to be six debates, not not three. And I think the first debate should come as quickly as possible after the last nominating convention because the debates change the demeanor of the campaign. They get serious, and I think the, the, the quicker you can get them on track to a serious discussion, the better the, better the discussion is going to be. So... Uh, uh, that would that, those were my suggestions to the debate commission. Yep. Bob, thank you for a delightful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.